WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Governor Holcomb announces a statewide mask mandate. Attorney General Hill doesn't think it's legal. Plus, calls for a special session and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending July 24th, 2020. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Governor Eric Holcomb announced all Hoosiers will have to wear a mask when in public starting Monday. Holcomb cited worrying COVID-19 trends, including an increase in the number of daily tests coming up positive and more people hospitalized for the virus as reasons to impose the mask mandate. We want more Hoosiers to continue this trend of going back safely to work. We don't want to dial it back or put it in reverse or, as some are, shutting down again. Not wearing a mask when required will be a Class B misdemeanor punishable by fines of up to $1,000 and up to six months in jail. However, Holcomb says the focus will be on spreading the message, not citations. The mask police will not be patrolling Hoosier streets. Mask wearing is not required for those with medical conditions that make it difficult to wear one or when exercising, eating, or drinking. Will a mask mandate without enforcement do any good? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwanis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Now, before we get to the questions, we need to update this story a little bit because the executive order establishing the mask mandate came out shortly before we started taping today's show. And Governor Holcomb backed off a little. Under state law, the emergency powers that he has given uh, include a Class B misdemeanor when, uh, for violation. Now, he has emphasized, as he did in the package we just showed you, uh, that this wasn't about enforcement, this was about education. But the executive order strictly says that the only enforcement of the mask mandate is to be done by state and local health departments via education. So he's even removed the criminal penalty part of this. So Ann Delaney, does this need enforcement? I don't know that it needs enforcement, but I, 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 it needed to be done months ago. It needed to be done on the national level months ago. I don't think we would be having the resurgence that we're having now if the governor had stepped up and, and demanded that people wear masks before this. Instead, he waited until Donald Trump finally saw the light and said the same thing nationally. It's, you know, no, no matter what the politics of this are, and obviously he got some pressure from the right-wing Republicans about enforcement, no matter what the politics of this are, the science of it is that if you wear masks and wash your hands and social distance, you can control this pandemic like they have in Europe. We were not doing that, and the consequences are we have tens of thousands of people who have died unnecessarily. That's just inexcusable. So I, I don't care whether it gets enforced. I just want an unequivocal message from the national leaders, or whatever they are up there, to the state leaders to say, 
you need to wear a mask. You need to have, you need to accept responsibility, not just for your own conduct, but for what you do to others, and you need to wear a mask. A few weeks ago, Governor Holcomb, when asked about why he wasn't in, uh, putting uh, in a mask mandate, said, I trust Hoosiers, I trust Hoosiers to do the right thing. Does that look naive in retrospect? No, I don't think so. I mean, look, he's, again, and I've said this before, he's, he, Governor said, Governor Holcomb has said from the beginning that he is going to adopt policies and react to data and science and what is happening on the ground. And what we clearly see is happening on the ground. He had, he had a delay reopening to go from, going from four to five to go to four and a half. Uh, and we're continuing to see um, the, these cases grow. And so he's, he's reacting to that with what Dan is correcting as in, in a, proven way to, a proven way to do this. On the enforcement side, it's impractical to enforce this in a massive way. Um, if you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people that choose not to, which you will, choose not to, uh, not to go along with this. But more than that, uh, more than just saying that you should wear a mask, we are, we're trying to change the cultural expectation of your personal responsibility in this. It's so bizarre to me that Republicans have latched onto this. Um, it's this, the political proxy fights we, we fight on, on conser the issues we pick to, to determine what's conservative and it isn't, you know, baffle me. Uh, this is about personal responsibility. It's about protecting your neighbors. And those used to be pretty conservative I ideals. Um, the government telling you to do it or not telling you to do it, the, the circumstances we're in, you should. And, and I think we're trying to change the cultural expectation of, of, of how you behave in public. So there is no enforcement, whether, whether there was really never going to be enforcement when Governor Holcomb talked about it on Wednesday to absolutely no criminal penalty, no enforcement really by law enforcement uh, under the executive order now that we've seen it. Will it really have that much of an impact then? I think it will have an impact, uh, and we can certainly speculate. That's what we do on this show is a lot of speculation, so I'm not denigrating speculation. But in this case, <laughs> we God. actually have the benefit of empirical data, uh, and we can look at two states as a case study here about what happens when you do and when you don't. Both run by conservative Republicans in the governor's office, both uh, similarly situated, you know, in terms of their, their, I don't know, is that longitude or latitude? But we're talking about Texas. Geography. Geography, thank you. We're talking about Texas and Florida. Texas three weeks ago, Greg Abbott, again, Republican governor, put uh, a mandate in place, very much like the one that Eric Holcomb is talking about. And now they, after an initial spike, uh, well, it was the spike actually that prompted his action. We've seen now that it has peaked and is heading down. Versus Florida, where uh, Governor DeSantis, also Republican, conservative, has seen fit not to do that. Now, you have about two-thirds of counties that I think have done it on their own, but he has been adamant about not doing it at the state level. And guess what? As of the taping, as, as when we sat down to tape the show, there's still, still the a pretty significant spike. So I think we can look at those states as uh, real evidence of, of what works and what doesn't. Does this, Holcomb Wednesday says, this is not about enforcement, the mask police aren't patrolling the streets, but there is a criminal penalty like there have been with the other executive orders under the pandemic, which is how the emergency powers law works in this state. A bunch of Republicans get really angry. Law enforcement officials say we refuse to enforce this. And he comes out today and he gets rid of the criminal penalty. Does that make him look weak? I don't know if it makes him look weak, but, I mean, he, he definitely bowed to the pressure because, you know, his previous orders, for instance, back in March or early April when yeah, we did the stay-at-home order, specifically said that police could enforce the order. This one now specifically says no, that only health departments can 
through education. So he definitely bowed to some pressure from his GOP colleagues. And mostly I just see confusion from people, which is why do we do a mask mandate if you're not going to enforce it? Well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should people be fined for violating a mask wearing mandate? A yes or B no. Last week we asked you who will win the race for Indiana Attorney General now that we know the two candidates. 74% of those who voted say Todd Rokita will be the winner, the Republican, with 26% voting for the Democrat, Jonathan Weinsapple. If you'd like to... If you'd like to take part in the poll, we did have a little bit of a spike in numbers. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. To me, that's just organization, right? Yeah. Attorney General Curtis Hill, in a non-binding opinion, said, Governor Eric Holcomb doesn't have the authority to mandate masks in public or attach a criminal penalty, which he has now not done, to that order. Five GOP state senators asked Hill to weigh in on the mandate's legitimacy. In an advisory opinion which carries no force of law, Hill says the broad emergency powers given to the governor do not include the authority to make everyone in the state wear a mask in public or to make violation of that order a Class B misdemeanor. Holcomb says he's not worried about potential lawsuits over his order. Both candidates for attorney general also weighed in. Democrat Jonathan Weinzapple supports the governor. He says he believes Holcomb, a Republican, has the authority to issue the mandate and would defend it in court. Republican candidate Todd Rokita is less clear. He says valid concerns have been raised about public health versus individual liberty, and Rokita says he would work with the legislature to clarify the emergency powers law in state code. Michael Bryan, we saw a mask, made, uh, mask mandate overturned in court up in Michigan. Will Indiana face the same issue? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Michigan, I don't know the law in Michigan. The law in Indiana is pretty far-reaching. It, it, it gives the governor pretty, it's, it's not a long, if you want, if people at home want to read it, it's not very long. That's true. <laughs> and, and the enforcement provisions are even shorter. Uh, it, it's very clear that it gives the, gives the governor this authority. Um, it, part of the, this was part political stunt and a half-baked one at that. Um, I mean, to, to pull Curtis Hill in here, and, and I, if nothing else, my only takeaway from this, I think, is it makes a heck of a case for an appointed attorney general. Since the attorney general is obligated to represent the governor and now has publicly disagreed with him at the request of the legislature, and we know in the past that Curtis Hill has gone to the legislature and asked them to ask him so he can do this. So I don't know if that happened here, but he's done it in the past, and there's a political stunt gone, do you gone think, bad. Do you think the governor has the authority to issue yeah, a mask mandate? I think mandate? he does have the authority to do it. And, you know, you'd think Curtis Hill was bitter about being denied the nomination <laughs> or something. And, and Todd Rokita, I said several weeks ago that there wasn't one wit's worth of difference ideologically between him and Curtis Hill. Yeah, but he's, not, right. he's not wrong either And that we didn't think about these types of situations. One of the reasons it's broad is because we tried to capture every situation we could never think of. Right. Yeah, he pointed right. out that when the legislature created the law, it, he's not sure, and I, prob and I think I agree with him. It was a little before my time here, but I don't think anybody thought about an emergency order that would extend for five months and, and would, have to. Well, would have to be extended yeah. for but so long. But the wording is there. And if the wording is there, we don't have that we don't have the records that you have in Congress to go back and look at what the intent Understand is. Whether, you're right. And That's so his right. recollection of it may not be accurate. The way you read Todd Rakita's statement, though, um, was he saying that the, that the governor doesn't have the authority? I don't think he, I think he was saying that the governor does have the authority. Uh, yeah, he specifically didn't say that the governor didn't have the authority. <laughs> I mean, by, by basically saying we should 
clarify this next year and dial it back, I mean, to me, that's admitting that the governor does have the authority. And if anyone hasn't read the law, I encourage everyone to. It is, when we say wide-reaching and broad, it's, it's massively right wide-reaching and broad. So there's a whole nother philosophical discussion about how broad those powers should be, how long they should be able to be enforced before the legislature gets involved. But the authority is there. I think, it's you know, ten, I think it's Indiana Code 10143. Three, that yeah, is correct. Problem, the problem, too, though, is on the duration of this is you have a part-time legislature. And when you have a pandemic like this, that's why you have to leave it as broad as Right, because there. the law specifically says the General Assembly can halt right. the order when they through come a back. concurrent resolution. But they can't get into session unless right. the governor calls and them. And the General right. Assembly does uh, did give clarity to a certain extent on this issue in terms of giving the governor very broad powers. But I would argue that even if this statute, and what is it again? 10143. Thank you, very good, you passed the test. Uh, even if that were not on the books, I think that Eric Holcomb would still, in an emergency, uh, health emergency, have a lot of latitude. We have a, and uh, we can look, again, we can speculate or we can look at evidence. And in this case, once again, we have evidence. The Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court, has a 115 year history, back to the debate over smallpox vaccinations uh, 115 years ago, to give, in these kinds of emergencies, a lot of authority to health officials to say, you may not want this, a shot, or they didn't address masks specifically, but one would presume if you've got to get a shot, yeah. you probably, and then we've seen, you could say, well, 115 years, things have changed, aside from yeah. case law in between, but uh, we also have the case out of California where uh, just was 5-4 decision from the Supreme Court just back in May of this year, where they said that Gavin Newsom in the state of, of California could in fact keep churches uh, from from reconvening uh, during this crisis. So I think the, the case law is pretty clear. I will say, if anybody wants to try a case here in Indiana, it seems like the likelihood of that has gone down without the criminal penalty. But right, and what are the we'll damages? See. What are the damages? That's an excellent question. Okay. Indiana House and Senate Democrats want the governor to call a special session of the General Assembly to meet in August. Dems say there are critical issues that must be addressed before the legislature's scheduled return in January. Senate Democratic leader Tim Lannon says there's nothing more important in the short term than ensuring Hoosiers don't have to choose between their health and their right to vote. That's why he wants expanded vote by mail to be one of the issues the legislature takes up in a special session. We, for the life of us, cannot understand why our Republican colleagues are afraid to give all Hoosiers the choice to exercise their right to vote. Democrats also want the legislature to have input on how federal COVID-19 relief money is spent. It's currently overseen by a small group of unelected business and government leaders appointed by the governor. And some police reform is on the Democrats' agenda for a special session, including bans on chokeholds and no-knock warrants. Senator Eddie Melton says in the wake of widespread protests over racial injustice and police brutality, Indiana leaders have done nothing concrete to show they believe black lives matter. Because it is not an exaggeration when we say that lives are on the line. Allowing the deep and structural problems in our criminal justice system to continue to prevail is not an option. Governor Eric Holcomb says he'll consider the proposal and will seek input from Republican legislative leaders. Nikki Kelly, speaking of those Republican legislative leaders, Speaker Todd Houston, Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray, what did they have to say about this? Not much, <laughs> which they don't have to. Um, I will say one thing. The irony is that I think they could get some Republicans on board with a special session if they tailored it 
to say not include the voting issues or the police reform issues, but there are a number of Republican legislators who want to have a say in spending that money, who want to look at this emergency issue. So maybe if they had kind of narrowed it a more, they might have been able to get some more support. Yeah, Bray in Houston in statements to me said, we don't see any reason right now. So are the chances of this pretty slim to nil? And given, given their apparent opposition, I think that makes it fairly unlikely. I, I would just point out that even, uh, I think your point is well taken, Nikki, that if you could narrow the scope uh, or the agenda, uh, the, the problem, of course, is you can't narrow the scope or the agenda. I mean, yes, as supermajorities, they and as the people who control the House chairmanships, they could bottle up certain legislation or, or not even call certain legislation for consideration. But that doesn't keep Tim Lannan and his counterparts in the House, the Democratic uh, uh, folks in the General Assembly from screaming, you know, bloody murder at the microphone over these issues. And so offering it still, amendments to them on that. Well, it still gives them a chance to get people on record as for or against right. these issues. So there is a, some political risk. To that point, though, to Nikki's point even, some of the things the Democrats want, if you get Republicans back in that building, is it going to go the way Democrats are hoping it goes? <laughs> it may get worse. <laughs> you know, in Democrats' mind, uh, based on the votes that they uh, or the the bills that they want, they want to be heard. Look, I mean, there may be a reason to bring the legislature back into a special session. I mean, there may be, they may have to bring them back if, if more federal stimulus money comes through. Or there's some need to consult the legislature. The governor has broad authority to, to obviously to, to spend those dollars and and, um, and augment state government and. and, and channel those resources. The legislature, the legislators I talk to, they're all, all over the board on this. Some of them are like, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm deciding who's getting money and who's not. Let the governor do that. That's, you know, that's his job. Let, let, him, let, let him carry, let let him carry the it. weight on that. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's not agreement among Republicans on whether or not they should come back in. Now, Jim Lucas, to your point, John, Jim Lucas is going to come in and he's going to drop a ban on, on, mask, on a mask mandate on the floor, and you're going to have to deal with it. And that's why they, that part of the reason is you can't control a special session. You can say this is what we're doing, but there's no procedural way to limit it. Do you think whether what the agenda looks like is probably very different, but do you think that we will be in a special session before January? Probably not. I mean, some of the things that need to be done with the police departments are being done. Indianapolis, for example, is not going to have no-knock uh, searches anymore. And, and those kinds of things can be done individually by police departments, which is a good thing. Uh, the governor can stand right up now and say we're going to have voting by mail, which is what he ought to do for November and not wait until three weeks before when it's going to be a bots job. We can do the job, and we can do a job effectively. If he wants to vote in person, let him. Anybody who wants to vote in person can. But for the rest of us who may be a little bit frightened about going into those polling places, or for the people who don't want to man those polling places, we need voting by mail, and we need him to step up. And for him to say that it's not for, for Carl, uh, whatever his name is, the Republican state chair, to say that it isn't a political issue is an outright lie. You've hurt Kyle Hupford's feelings. Yeah, yeah. well, it's an outright lie. It's exactly <laughs> about political. They don't want people to vote. All right, well, the Indiana Department of Workforce Development will stop issuing an additional $600 to recipients of unemployment benefits this weekend. But Indiana Public Broadcasting's Justin Hicks reports many Hoosiers say it needs to be extended or replaced. The $600 expires at the end of the month due to a provision in the Federal CARES Act. If unemployed workers file for benefits on or before the 25th, DWD says it will make the additional payments. Unless Congress provides additional relief, Hoosiers would get at most a maximum benefit of $390 per week. Indianapolis resident Tierra Richardson lost her job due to the pandemic. 
She says without some kind of additional stipend, she won't have enough money to cover rent and utilities, and she's almost out of savings. I don't think we deserve the 600 but at this time of need, we do need the money because people are losing their jobs. People are falling behind in bills. Still others say they've been waiting months to receive any benefits at all, as a backlog of claims are still being processed and verified by the state. John Schwanis, what do you think the odds are that Congress will re-up the benefit or at least give some additional amount, if not $600? They're going to have to do something. Uh, the, the numbers simply dictate it. Uh, NPR had an interesting uh, analysis, I think, yesterday that I think it was uh, as many as a third of renters in the United States say they have no assurance that in the absence of additional aid, they can actually afford next month's uh, rent. Uh, that's that's a problem. And, and even in where there are some local and state rent assistance programs, they've been tapped out, New York City and others. Here. So, Here. so you look, Indianapolis had to shut exactly. down. Exactly. So you look, at, you look at renters as an issue. You look at mortgage uh, uh, payers as a, as a problem. I presume they're arguably in the same boat. I don't know why they'd be much different. And then you look at just the income necessary to uh, keep food on the table and, and gas in the car. Something's got to give. There's been a perception issue all along with this additional $600, which is that some people were actually getting more through unemployment than they were making in the jobs before they lost them. Will the pressure here be enough, though, that some additional amount is warranted, though? Yeah, it might. And look, I know some people who made more with the 600 plus their state than they were making. So that does exist. Does it you know, it's a small percentage of the people receiving the aid. But maybe the answer is maybe we drop it down to $300 for a couple more months and then drop it to zero so that there's more of a gradual thing instead of just the cliff. cliff yeah. Will some sort of additional benefit be? I, I think they have to. Politically, I think they have to. Otherwise, the, the, we, could see, we could see homeless people like we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And to the question of the 600 more, there are a few. There is no question. But part of that speaks to the fact that our system is built on low-wage workers. Why can't we live, raise the minimum wage, which hasn't been, hasn't been raised in decades? I mean, that's the problem here, that you have people living so close to the edge that there is no margin. And when the paycheck stops, they're homeless. And just brought up the point politically. Is that really the answer politically? They, they're going to have to do something? Well, I mean, it, it, it's not crassly political. I mean, there is a political consequence to not doing what people need, <laughs> right? And these people clearly what? clearly need it. I mean, for the conservatives who are outraged about the government telling them to wear a mask, where are they on making sure that we have a system that's paying people, like they're not giving money to people that don't need it and not giving money to people that do? You know, that, that for, as a fiscal conservative, I'm a little upset about that, about spending 3 or 4 or $5 trillion in three months and people that don't need it are getting it. So are you well, that, for the payroll tax cut? I'm for, I'm for some accounting of what money oh, we're giving to people. Yeah, yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> moving, moving on. The Indianapolis 500 will look, will look a little different this August with reduced fans and other health precautions in response to the coronavirus. However, Indiana Public Broadcasting's Samantha Horton reports the race is still expected to draw in more than 50,000 spectators. Race fans will have to undergo a temperature check at the gate and will receive a face mask and hand sanitizer. Seating will also be spread out to practice social distancing. These are just a few of the measures Indianapolis Motor Speedway officials released in an 88-page plan. The Indy 500 will be one of the largest public gatherings since the pandemic began. Dr. Ed Rock has been working with IMS officials to develop the plan. He says he does not believe the race should be seen as an experiment. This is the application of some pretty strict criteria in a large population 
to minimize that transmission as we move forward across the board. Race officials also said there won't be a TV blackout, and residents in the Indianapolis area will be able to see the race live. Well, at least the blackout will be lifted. And Delaney, do you think an Indy 500 at 25 percent capacity is safe enough? I think they've done a very good job on the seating arrangements and the uh, sanitizer and the masks and all of those things. And if you could have helicopters drop people into the seats and pick them up and take them home, it would be perfect. But now that's a stimulus package. I can pay for that. <laughs> when you have people coming in and out and going to the restrooms and going to the stand to the uh, refreshment stands, that's what worries me. And I'm a season ticket holder, okay? And I'm concerned I may not use whatever little, however they whittle my tickets down this time around because of the danger. This is not 25% capacity in a vacuum. This is a huge footprint, which Governor Holcomb has talked about, which is why mm -hmm. he thinks this is safer than bankers like Fieldhouse doing it at 25% capacity. But is it still safe enough? I mean, that's a lot of people in one it's, place. It's a lot of people. It's a lot to manage. It's a huge place. I mean, if you, if you can socially distance anywhere, it's the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah. And they, they came up with this 88-page... There are so many gates. Yeah, you know, that's, that, that's a good point. He, he, may have, he may have said this, this shouldn't be viewed as an experiment. It, does feel I just noticed like that well, I mean, but most I, I love the race. I'm not yeah. just been a great well, race this at is, all. Yeah, but that's no a separate conversation. conversation. Well, the, the, the race is a society falling apart but on a normal in a normal year. I mean, you walk around <laughs> and you're like, this is society crumbling. The race is going to be reduced by 75%. I thought eight eight and a quarter cars out there, That's they're going to have plenty of room on the track. Would you go if you had tickets? I would. I'm going. Well, that's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash IWIR, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because boy, a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.